Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick. And joining us today on the podcast, we have our regular medical director, Dr. Rob Dixon. Good afternoon, Casey. And we are lucky to have a couple of MCHD in charge paramedics. We have Ben Bro. Good to be here. And Jesus Contreras. Happy to be here, Doc. And this is really a Monday morning quarterback sort of hybrid, maybe a little bit of a review from a past podcast episode. It was recently EMS week here uh, at MCHD and obviously across the nation. And we had food trucks for the medics, which was pretty cool. And I was lucky enough to be standing beside Jesus in the food truck line. And he told me this case story that really blew me away. I blew my hair off. I don't have any hair now because of this case. And as he was going through the case, he was probably 70, 75% of the way there. And I said, this is a perfect podcast episode. This relates directly to the education that we've provided here. So many of the things that we talk about on the podcast and really was just an awesome case. What did you think? Yeah, this really rounded out. I was in the food line with Dr. Patrick and he was like, we're making this a podcast. We got to call Ben and <laughs> get everybody on. So this is actually like a super, this is a once in a lifetime win here. I mean, this is a fantastic case. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. And you know, for me, the why behind the podcast should be obvious, but sometimes here, even after, especially after 150 plus episodes, we get distracted by new initiatives, uh, you know, service things, debit day, image trend initiation, all the things that we go through as an EMS service that take our attention, that have taken our attention since we rolled this thing out four or five years ago, the novelty wears off. And this one really was a jolt, kind of a bolt injection of enthusiasm for me because the podcast helped this patient, spoiler alert. Um, so really, really cool opportunity to discuss a case. So I will let Ben lead it off. Tell us how the call came out. What did you know in route and how did you prepare in route mentally? Okay, absolutely. So uh, this call came out as a 48-year-old male, um, came out originally as a cardiac arrest. Um, they said in the notes that the patient was a trach patient and that somehow the, she was having really hard time breathing, difficulty breathing with that. Um, we all know trach patients are very, uh, make us really nervous. All of us, I believe, definitely me in those cases. I don't run in them too often, especially when they're emergent. Um, so starting out, me and Jesus talked a little bit about it, came up with a good plan. We always talk about that in route. We come up with the plans of what we expect, what kind of treatments we're going to run down, um, that kind of stuff. So we initially talked about, you know, if trick's still in place, what we're going to work on, suctioning, taking inner cannula out, that kind of stuff, and then our further steps down that path. Um, with that, we arrived on scene. Our uh, patient was sitting in a chair. She was already pale, cyanosis around the lips, um, really, really in some uh, really bad distress here. Um, her entire cannula was missing from there, which is, uh, made us, I think, both really nervous in that case. Um, but entire cannula was gone, so from there we kind of moved into where is this cannula at, first and foremost, and getting our patient oxygenated, 
She was, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, she was sitting at about 32% room air. Um, really yeah. bad, really bad case. <laughs> Crazy. I reviewed the chart a legit 28%. There you go, initial, initial saturation, patient uh, described in severe distress, cyanotic, mm -hmm. uh, I would call peri-arrest. Absolutely. Uh, with a SAT, a legitimate correlating SAT of 28%. So where'd your mind go, Jesus? What were your what were your initial steps? So you had discussed this in route. You at least had concept of trach parts and a trach approach, but now you've got to put that together with a patient who's literally crashing. So wh where did you go first? First, I started sweating, and then and then in my mind, I'm I'm thinking about uh, I'm thinking in Dr. Dixon's voice. What are some of the things that are going to kill this lady? And uh, those two things. Uh, we were uh, Ben and I were talking about on the way to the call was uh, inability to oxygenate and inability to ventilate that patient. And sure enough, when we uh, entered this scene, uh, we did see the patient still sitting on a chair, but slouched over, cyanotic. And in that immediate moment, I knew um, I knew two things: either we're going to have to crack this lady if we can't get that uh, inner cannula back in or we're gonna be working her as a full arrest. And so my my goal was to try and prevent those two things from happening. And then in that instant, um, the, 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 the in charge mentality and, and, and mind state kind of kicked in and I started delegating um, to the firefighters, you know, let's get the patient off the chair onto a service that we can actually, you know, work her safely. And, um, and in that doing so, and in that moment, um, somebody slipped on an SPO2 and I think it read somewhere like 28%. And at that point I really started sweating and I started realizing like, man, this, this could turn out to be real bad. And, and in that process, the patient, um, did the, uh, the pre-arrest thing that uh, we see a lot of uh, patients do, which she, she defecate, he defecated and um, had uh, some urination on himself. So I knew, I knew things were starting to get real bad there. And, um, and the, the, the next thing is I need to identify my airway and figure out what's going on with it. So we knew she was a trach patient. Um, the caregiver that was there with her let us know that the patient somehow accidentally um, removed the inner and outer cannula. And uh, when I went to look at her neck, um, the opening uh, for her tracheotomy was um, was almost completely shut. It was swollen and it was bleeding from the, from the area. So I knew that if we were going to do anything, it had to be fast before it completely swelled or, or got pretty nasty and, 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 and gunked up with blood and, and, um, and uh, secretions. So at that point, um, I went to try and um, and reinsert the cannula. Um, at the first time around, we I didn't really have a lot of success. Uh, ben was getting a bunch of other stuff ready for you know just in case it was an arrest. And I was up at the airway with one of the firefighters, and and we just kind of hyperextended her neck a little bit so I could get a better view of that neck. And once we got the little bougie-like thing in there, we were able to thankfully pass the cannula in and then pass the inner cannula after that and immediately started bagging because we did identify early on with the caregiver that she also was closed from the neck up so we weren't going to be able to ventilate her with a bvm so the only other thing we have here is a red bag and that little red bag carries a, a scalpel and uh, and a surgical uh, crite kit and so thankfully uh, we were able to oxygenate her well enough 
uh, within the first few minutes that we got her up to a site, I think like of 89, but uh, we could see some secretions flowing through that, through that BVM. So we went ahead and did a, a quick suctioning once we got her above 89. And after we suctioned, we continued bagging and uh, prepared her for the stretcher and did a 12 lead EKG and, and um, got her on the end title as well. Once we got the secretions cleared and at that point, she was when you know within three to five minutes ben she was already at about 96 percent on room air and by the time we got to the to the unit with her she was already starting to regain consciousness uh when we got to the hospital she was awake alert oriented and communicating with us and she had no recollection of the event the patient was grateful and understanding that something real bad happened to her the nurses at the hospital we're asking us well you know what is she doing what is the the patient what is he doing here and because uh, you know the patient looks fine doc walked in as well and patient was good one of the pieces of the story that i really liked that you glossed over but i thought was pretty cool just from an education standpoint is when you told it to me the first time as you were inspecting the neck and realizing that okay this thing's almost closed you made a really, really wise decision, and that was, I have to get something in the tract. And so the first thing you inserted wasn't any trach piece, wasn't any foreign object. It wasn't something that you had never used before. It was your go-to rescue tool. And we talk about that all the time on here. What did you put in first? The bougie. The bougie. Yeah. And then what did the family member, the caregiver, hand you? Because they handed you the wrong thing. This is where... I'm going to take a little bit of a victory lap here. What they hand you first? The inner cannula. The inner cannula. Mm-hmm. Now, for y'all that have listened to the podcast, we had the Terrible Trach podcast probably, I didn't look before we started today, 12, 18 months ago. And we also presented tracheostomy education and, and management in one of our mandatory in-person continuing education programs here. So this was a topic that we've reviewed here at MCHD, both direct in CE and indirectly on the podcast, which was pretty awesome to hear you tell this story. And then to think back, where'd the direction for that come from? 100% from the medics. So it came from difficult cases in the field. And and as Ben said, these make everybody nervous. These make me nervous. Why? Because because I don't deal with the kit, the parts all the time. And so that's where we started the education is talking about what do the parts look like? Why are they, why are trach, why are they named like they are? How do they fit together? What do you know, how do you, how do you, and then we got moved on to how do you troubleshoot one? Just what you guys thought, you know? So this is a hundred percent medic driven from our cases here where we ran into difficult trach patients and the medics fed that back and they said, Hey guys, we're, we're uncomfortable with this. We know it doesn't come up very often, but it's really, as this case illustrates, a life-saving skill and and knowledge base for paramedics. The second best part of the story I like, and I'll lay this one to you, Ben, because you were there for this one. This one made me chuckle a bit. Was the ER doc impressed or not? (laughs) Uh, That was very interesting. Uh, The doctor kind of just came in and, you know, we gave the story and he was just gave us that, uh, Oh, looks like she's fine now. It looks like it's fine. I guess that's why, why it. Did, why didn't you guys just discharge her? Yeah. <laughs> she's good to, go now. Her. good to go And that's really an amazing piece of this case is you think about how close that this patient was to cardiac arrest. I mean, we were in, we looked at the, we looked at the, uh, the data from the monitor and it wasn't a 28% O2 sat with a junky waveform 
it was 100% correlating. And we were literally seconds away. And I'd say literally with 100% truth in this one, we weren't far away from, from arrest here. And to think about how quickly you turn the corner from peri-arrest to an awake patient who realized, hey, something really bad happened here, and I'm not really sure what because I can't remember the last half an hour, but thanks yeah. is probably about what you got, correct, Yeah, Jesus? doc. Yeah, um, this patient, he had a lot of things going for him. Um, our response time was within minutes. Um, us and fire department arrived simultaneously, and not only that, that patient had two paramedics who had recently gone to CE for trach issues. And so uh, if there was anybody there that was going to be able to help that patient is it's us. So it was a, a, a full 360 moment for us going from uh, receiving that education at CE and then applying it on the field. Again, those skills that are low frequency, high risk for us. And, and so we're just happy for that. We're happy and thankful that you guys decided to teach that class because otherwise, man, we would have been sweating there trying to figure out what piece went where and, you know, and what was what. Well, we wouldn't be on the podcast today if we didn't walk through some some take-home points. Uh, walk us through the crashing trach pathway. And this one was a little bit different in that it had been entirely removed. So this wasn't a crashing trach with the tracheostomy tube in place. You arrived to a patient that, from what it sounds like, and we've not 100% confirmed this from the medical record, but it sounds like this very well may have been a laryngectomy situation with a single stoma and no connection above. We're not 100% sure on that one, but let's just, for discussion's sake, take this as a, a trach patient. And most of the time, when we arrive to these patients, the trach is not going to be removed. It's going to be in place. So what we want to do first, if the trach is in place, and we'll come back to if it's not in place to your all's case. If it's in place, we want to get all valves and the inner cannula removed. We want anything that could possibly be obstructing that's not 100% necessary out of the way. And then we want to try to pass suction or a bougie, either one. And if you pass suction and or a bougie and you clear the distal obstruction that's there, then you're done. The patient's SATs improve, entitled uh, decreases, all the things that you look for for an intact and improved airway. If that does not work, then we want to deflate the cuff and try to adjust the trach in place, not remove it, but adjust it slightly. And what that does is that allows potentially, if the distal end of the trach is lodged into the wall of the trachea, if we deflate the cuff, give it a little bit of room for adjustment, and then we can pass the bougie or pass suction, we solve the problem. So that's step two. If that does not work, then we're going to have to start thinking about things from above. And that's going to be either a supraglottic airway from above, a bag valve mask from above. You can potentially cover the mouth and use a, use a PEDS mask and ventilate at the stoma or even intubate from above. So you've got three or four options there, but it's going to be a little more complex if we get all the pieces off, try to pass suction in a bougie, deflate and adjust, then try to pass suction or bougie times two. If that's not working, we're going to have to move uh, a little bit more proximally and, and try to consider options from above. Now, if it's a laryngectomy patient and the larynx and the mouth does not connect anymore to the trachea, then you've got one option and one option only, and that's at that stoma. Yeah, luckily rare for you guys. I right. mean, you guys got a really, really difficult one, right. uh, but the laryngectomy patients are a fairly rare subset. When you think of, we'll, we'll just kind of circle back to why do people get tracheostomies in the first place? And the number one reason is they're, they're chronically vent dependent or ventilator dependent. So they've had brain injury, 
they've had some type of neurologic insult, they're post-cardiac arrest, they've had some type of insult, and they need long-term ventilation uh, on, the, on mechanical ventilation. So that's the number one. So in most of these patients, have a, you can have a look from above and see if you can bag them. As Dr. Patrick said, you can bag over the trach with a peeve mask. You can BVM and hold a finger over the stoma, or you can use a superglottic, some other airway device. In this situation, you had nothing in place but a stoma, concern for laryngectomy, at least possible, if not present. So at that point, you've got one option and one option only, and that's to try to go back through the stoma, which y'all did, with a bougie first, perfect. That's the absolute 100% correct move because that's the piece of equipment that we have in our hands every single time that we intubate. Y'all are facile with the bougie. You're preloading it. You're using it with our King Vision here at MCHD and the channel blade every single intubation. So to say, okay, let's put the bougie in this stoma spot and then let's see if we can fire the trach back over as a guide is, is, the perfect, is the perfect approach. And had you not discussed the parts of a trach over the last 12, 18 months or so, you might have tried to slide the inner cannula over the bougie. I know that I would have been guilty of that at different points in my career with when this had all collected dust and been so distant in the past, I didn't remember. Um, so that was perfect to say, hey, that does, that's not what goes first. And remember, the inner cannula is there really as a cleaning tool. So the, the less malleable, the more rigid trach tube itself stays in all the time. It's most of the time sutured in or strapped on. And then the inner cannula clips along the inside of the trach at the external orifice, for lack of a better term, and it clips on and off. And you can pull that out. You can saline wash it. You can get the big mucus plug gunk off, and then it allows you to clean the trach, so to speak, without removing the outer, more rigid, permanent tracheostomy tube every single time so you don't lose that track. So if you had not known that, strong move, Jesus, that would have not slid over the bougie very easily. It may not have even fit. Who knows? Uh, it would not have been the, the yeah, best Yeah, it's not move. a rigid structure, it's so soft. it's a little bit dip, more difficult to right. pass through a swollen bleeding orifice right. so really good call i think we're gonna link the podcast maybe the ems world piece i think that'd be helpful here because it will show you guys the parts that we're talking about so if you haven't looked at this training have a listen to the other terrible tracheostomy podcast have a read of the ems world piece that dr hill wrote on this excellent yeah it's it's just just an just an excellent case that takes i agree kind of 360 from our educational initiative to an actual patient here in Montgomery County that 100% was saved because of this. And that's oftentimes we don't feel that quite as much as we probably could and should. And there's a lot of daily grind that goes into this job every single day, for sure on y'all's end, for us as medical directors too. And then to sit down and be able to pull the mics up, turn the sound on and talk about a case that reflects a past podcast with an awesome save is just really cool in yeah, lack of a better term case, guys. Yeah, great at case at first we didn't i didn't even think it was something worth mentioning to anybody because i was like in my head in our head it's like the docs taught us something <laughs> we did it and the patient had a good outcome from it and uh you know thankfully you guys were able to recognize us for that and, and bring this case forward
It's an excellent case. We're here for our patients. This info, info that we, we spread every month now truly can save lives. Pretty cool. Make your plan in route. That's one of the keys from hearing this story a couple times now is that y'all saw your call notes, you saw trach, you saw peri-arrest, and you ran a trach algorithm. Whether it's DSI in an impending respiratory patient, whether it's traumatic arrest algorithm in a sick trauma patient, whether it's, hey, we may need to do a finger thoracostomy here, let's run the anatomy real quick. Using that time while we're en route is 100% vital, no matter what medical high-risk, low-frequency, high-risk, high-frequency, no matter what situation we're talking about. Even if you're running a refusal and you start talking about some refusal uh, high points, it's always important to use that time to get your brain right and to get mentally prepared for what you might see. And you all know we may be wrong, and the patient and the call notes may not mesh because we're part of an imperfect communication situation, but so many times it is correct like this case, and it can absolutely be, be a save savior for y'all and traits scare us all they scare me i think they scare you uh plan and preparation will absolutely slay those monsters so excellent job thank y'all for joining us on the podcast today anything you want to add before we wrap up no, that's excellent guys great case all right thanks to jesus and ben for joining us thanks to y'all for listening every month if you have questions concerns ideas please email us podcast at mchd-tx.org Leave us a like or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We love it. As always, we appreciate you listening. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.